Good morning, Marion, my co-presenter. This is Jeff. And Good morning, Jeffrey. Good morning, listeners. It's freezing cold, so get yourself back into bed with a cup of coffee. It did seem a little chilly. Oh, they said it was uh, three degrees, but well, going to be three degrees, yeah. but I think that wind is blowing, so it feels like minus three. On the, on the radio news, they said top of 15, and I thought, oh, that doesn't sound mm, too bad. Television but... said top of 14, and I think we may get that, but we may only get that for about an hour. Yeah. Anyway, the next hour and a half, we hope to be introducing you to uh, news from the drug war front, which is we produce on behalf of Karma. Yeah. And it's a developing community. And we want to thank and acknowledge the territory that we are on in um, and thank uh, the Ngunnawal people and their relations and leaders, past, leaders and present. past, present and emerging. Yeah, um, look, one thing I just want to inform listeners who are expecting us to just focus on news from the drug war front, which is what we've done for over 15 years, whether it be local, uh, international or just Australian um, focus stories, is we felt that this um, issue of recon- National Reconciliation Week and this being right in the middle of it was just too important to let go. And I have to apologise due to a whole range of issues, which no point going into. We haven't got um, an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, guest, guest, Mm -hmm. for which I apologise. So you're going to have to make do with um, the hopefully somewhat informed by years of social activism um, comments from two non-Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander uh, people in myself and Marion, but hopefully we can get people thinking about the issue because I think certainly, and we'll be talking about drug and alcohol issues as much as we will be talking about reconciliation issues. Oh yes, we yeah. need to cover both areas. It's important though that we acknowledge that the services of harm for harm reduction for Indigenous or First Nations people is really important. We want to make sure that drugs and alcohol, in particular. Do not interfere, if you like, with the process of developing relationships with Indigenous or First Nations people and that deaths, whether it be in custody or out, from the use or overuse of um, drugs and alcohol are so widespread with First Nations people, and it's not Getting for want better. of it's not for want of wanting no. things better. It's no. not for want of trying. It's for want of involvement and how difficult it is to get people to come out and say, "I am a drug user and I am of First Nations." We get um, people to come in and be part and parcel of the provision of services. But sometimes it's very difficult to retain those workers and we don't want that. We need people, we need emerging um, First Nations people to be involved with Connections, which is the uh, First Nations arm of uh, Karma. Yeah. So I couldn't agree more, Marion. I think that's been something that, look, the whole history of European civilization is a litany of... Um, lack of interest, uh, not even noticing, uh, being left out of the constitution. Being left out of the conversation. Left out of the conversation. Yep. 
uh, frontier wars, rewriting history, all sorts of really well, horrible things. Even the word Geoffrey re- rewriting her story, I used to say it was. And in fact, many uh, feminists did. So, yes, we have we have an Im- immense um, array of topics that relate often only to white population and not to the uh, First Nations people. And as we say, it's not for want of trying, it's simply for want of discrimination, of stigma, of... um, Lack of resources. Lack of resources. We have the data. We've had the data for 40 years, on 60 years really, on the deaths in custody and, and the deaths related to consumption of drugs and alcohol um, and just the, the morbidity and mortality, not just the deaths but also the, um, the illness and the disabilities that go along with the consumption because no safe or harm reduction methods have been developed or strategies have been developed for um, Indigenous or First Nations people that are run by First Nations people, except we must say, have to say that acknowledge Monica's role. Monica is First Nations woman and proud of it, half First Nations and, past, and proud British origin as well, she says, and has developed a program that is really valuable and worth running for women who have involvement with um, community services and have had their children extracted from them on the basis of a bit of gossip, if you like, or a, an anonymous phone call to welfare services. And, and But I would like to say that program run because it's a really important one. Anyway. Look, I, I think um, an increase in the number, array and type of services... Should be just as much as for us. Should be just as much for any other uh, community who are um, impacted negatively by... Prohibition or the war on people who use drugs. Um, in fact, um, people who re- listen to the show regularly might recall um, a story that really gave me some insight. It was some years ago when there was a small survey uh, of audio interviews about the um, uh, the experience in the new Cam- what was then the new Canberra jail by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander clients, three women, three men. And some very interesting information came out of it. And at the end of the first interview I did with um, a female uh, client, I asked her if, if she would mind if I, as you know, as a white person lacking knowledge and information, could ask her a question um, from her perspective. And she said, "Go right ahead, fellow. I've got no, you know nothing, yeah. no problem at all." And I said, "Is there any reason why it does seem to be very difficult for established?" Um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, groups and organisations and welfare groups and health centres to take on the concept of harm reduction, which is government policy after all. Yeah. Federal government policy too, yeah. I mean, look, it it should be used um, a a lot more extensively as government policy and it could be... um, It needs to be flagged more openly, doesn't it, Geoffrey? Really, it is a kind of a... It's a, an undertone, if you like. It's meant but not promoted loudly. Well, to me, Marion, it's a bit like closing the gap. We've had yes. that for how many years? And yeah. we have a report every year and, you know, the odd thing here and there that gets better we hear all about and all the things that haven't got better, you know, sort of silence, you know. Yeah. Um, look, for me personally, um, 
I've spent all my adult life um, in Australia. I was born in the States, but my mum emigrated when I was, you know, six or seven and uh, grew up in Melbourne. And um, when I went to school, I never heard anything about the actual real history of the settlement of Australia. I can't recall there ever been a class in no. history, no. Um, any story about um, genocidal wars, frontier wars. Absolutely. Um, There's been a lot on NITV over the last couple of weeks. It's been really interesting watching. It's, it's, um, they bring out some really interesting stuff, not just on our First Nations people, but around the world. Yep. And it is very much a common experience that doesn't justify it. It just is to be noted, I think, that it is a common experience with First Nations people. We don't appreciate that we have perhaps the oldest civilization, or definitely the oldest civilization, living, mm. retaining on civilization mm. on, on the planet. But every other First Nations people, the American Indians, the Canadian Indians, so indi Indigenous um, Thai um, groups, populations, have much the same kind of um, response from their government. They have to advocate louder, stronger, more proudly, more assertively, if you like. And if they get aggressive or if they are assertive, it is termed as aggressive. Yeah. It's a real problem. It's a real problem. And look It's at like being, being a woman and being, being black would be... Oh, it's like... A multiplicity, you know, you, just come up how with, much more stigma can you take? <laughs> you've come up with a short straw. Except for being disabled. Yeah. Everything. I, I noticed one thing um, from the recent change of government uh, in Brazil has been a focus to try and undo the damage of the Absolutely. previous president who was basically giving... Giving what, away the Amazon, yes. The, well, the established areas for Indigenous tribes yes. to continue their lifestyle, giving it away to cattle ranchers yep. and growers of crops, you know, single and crops. wiping out the, the um, for lumber, for timber. Timber, yeah. Wiping out the forest for timber and planting palm oil uh, plantations, or palm tree plantations, largely for the oil, which is because there's such a lot to be gained out of it, but actually at the cost of the Indigenous tribes up and, and down survival. the Amazon. And their survival. And they are fighting back, yes. Yeah, which is, you know... And has come more to the fore with the change of government too, yeah. which is really pleasing to hear. And yeah. we need to just, I think, Geoffrey, we have so much... To say on this issue, but let's get into the introduction yep. first and get some music playing so we okay. don't have to just do Well, up. just a quick intro. This is today's edition of News from the Drug War Front, and it's brought to you by Karma, the Canberra Alliance for Harmonisation and Advocacy, and also The Connection, which is Canberra's peer-based drug and alcohol service for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander clients. Uh, we promote um, the broad array of services provided by Karma, like wraparound services, and we also report on stories that are relevant to illicit drug users from Australia and around the world, and we also try and promote discussion and also get people to think about the need for different approaches to dealing with the harms caused by problematic drug use than pro just prohibition, which we've had for over five decades, and there's more drugs than ever, more profit than ever. You know, it's, it's, it's just getting bigger and, and more, uh, more destructive. Yes. And with more more uh, bodies in its wake, yes. if you like. It's a more blood. Yeah. Karma runs a variety of services. Look, today is the 1st of June. 
Um, it's a Tuesday, the first Tuesday of every month, the uh, opioid uh, reversal of overdose workshop is on. May the 30th. Oh, is it? Oh, I'm a day early, always. <laughs> day early, dollar late, dollar short. Anyway, next Tuesday then in that case, so you've still got time to register register 62533643, contact Dave or Damo if you want to get in, into the training group for the overdose reversal workshop, which will be held at the Early Morning Centre on Northbourne Avenue in in the city it's on the first tuesday of every month and i'm sorry i forgot that first may had 31 days my grandmother would be horrified um but it's at two o'clock every at two o'clock first every tuesday first tuesday of the, the month. month and there are other training workshops held at other times but they will be notified through the karma website and if you contact dave or damo he will be able they will be able to tell you when they're available. But it's one that we can just totally endorse and Absolutely. say, no-brainer, go do it. Everybody has access to um, naloxone or narcone, as yep. it's called. You can get it for free over the counter yep. at the pharmacy or if you want to go to the workshop on the first Tuesday of every month, just register with Dave or Damo. But it is everybody should have a dose of naloxone in their pocket just the nasal spray, yep. maybe two. We haven't had much noise about the uh, uh, the the uh, contamination of heroin products with fentanyl, but we have had uh, news from the drug checking unit, which is on Thursdays and Fridays, available Thursdays and Fridays, that uh, some of the cocaine has been contaminated with fentanyl, which is a real problem because people who use cocaine are not necessarily opioid users, so overdosing is a very very open and, and um, what, a large possibility for people who use cocaine and are getting very strong opioids contaminating that drug. Did you get it's around to seeing the Four Corners report? I did see it, actually, yeah, yes, I did see it. It was... Um, it was interesting, but in that it told me more about cocaine than I ever knew. Yeah. Um, and quite a lot about that seemed to be floated, if you like, as possibilities. Um, although I understand that Four Corners tends to research its its stories fairly, fairly well. in depth yes. and they have their knowledge of what they provide is actually could be termed as factual. Where, how far the cocaine provision extends is, um, you know, how deeply into society it has contact. It would be interesting to know, but there have been some big busts over the weekend, Geoffrey. Um, a big one was 150 kilograms of heroin, was it? Certainly signs And a large one of cocaine too. Cartels so, getting yeah, big, big introduction, yeah, straight yep. through and... The door, I thought that was an interesting concept that they, yes. instead of calling somebody a, like that used to be gateway drugs, they used to call marijuana a gateway drug. Um, what we have are doors that are uh, instituted in, um, this is according to the Four Corners program, in um, uh, the customs and excise or in the border security forces. They have paid doors, which are people who will allow a shipment of drugs to come in. Anyway, I want to say quickly, Karma's provides integrated services, which is really important 
to know um, we provide a space where people can simply exist in comfort and safety, and it's just important as a formal health or social service, provide a, a holistic, person-centred, rights-based approach to service provision. We encourage self-care and solidarity. It empowers people to demand their rights, build self-worth, price, solidarity, and combat the effects of stigma and discrimination. One of the biggest problems, of course, is self-stigmatisation. So get involved and learn and... Absolutely, yep. and talk about it because yep. it's really important that we do. Uh, community leadership and involvement is transformational. It's one of the big um, headings out of your presentation at the Harm Reduction Conference, Jeffrey. The leadership of peers eases the building of trusting relationships and ensures that people are treated as human beings and not just patients. And that's something that Karma promotes and stands for. Um, we ensure a culturally safe environment for Indigenous communities and make services more accessible and acceptable to people who may otherwise be marginalised, which is all of us. But indeed, it applies more to First Nations people because often First Nations services are very, as you said earlier, loath to provide harm reduction services, although we must say that they do provide needle and syringe exchange at uh, Wanunga. And that's really important. Jeffrey, I just another quick point, Maz, before you go on. You. I was going to say, I just interrupted you before on <laughs> what you were saying. Oh, no. So please finish what you were going to say. Uh, I just think that it's interesting that um, intergenerational trauma, which is something I didn't know much about till I read some you know, enlightening information about it and what it can do to a society or a culture and the damage it takes to undo, or if ever, makes it uh, sort of quite um, more clear-cut as to why drugs like heroin could be attractive attractive and seen as part of it. Absolutely, because heroin stops you from feeling. And if you feel stressed, distressed, emotional, traumatised, stigmatised, why would you not select a drug that stops you feeling any real emotions? So, yeah, I just think that's a, a really important point, Jeffrey. Yep. Good one to have brought up. Yeah. Will anyway. we play Yothi Indies? I um, think we should, yes. Uh, I'm hoping this will work. Um, yes. With a bit of luck. Yothi Indies classic, Treaty. Oh, Treaty, good.
Wow, that's as powerful as the day I first heard it, isn't yeah, it? It's, it's certainly that first note, Jeffrey, that got me <laughs> uh, through the microphone, the, the um, headphones across, hit me right in the head. I didn't have it set up uh, just right, <laughs> so apologies for that, Marion. That's um, all right. No, no, I love the song. I just, pull that first bang of the drums certainly grabbed my attention. There's no way you can ignore that. Well, we've got the national news coming up shortly, but I just thought as a way of introduction um, to our discussion in the second uh, hour of the show, um, it's been a long journey as a 65-year-old white Australian to actually learn some of the actual reality of the history of European civilization. Not that I was totally unaware, but not being part of the Constitution, terra nullius, um, yes, you know. Which is just rubbish, yeah. You know, I mean, it took until, what, um, a Murray Islander, Eddie Marbo, to um, even get to the High Court. That's right, to acknowledge that it wasn't terra nullius. And prove that they had a system of property rights. Ownership, That yep. were identified and maintained and recognised by other people. Can I introduce some of our listeners who may not know about Eddie Marbo, and I'm, excuse me to First Nations people, I'm going to use his name and a statement of where he comes from. Um, Eddie Marbo was born in 1936 and passed in 1992. He was a Torres Strait Islander who believed that white laws about land ownership 
were wrong and who fought to change them, who fought a 10-year battle through the courts which culminated in the Mabo decision of 1992 by the High Court of Australia, Eddie Mabo was able to prove in court that he and his family had ownership of their land on Murray Island in the Torres Strait. This implication, or the implication of this decision, was that terra nullius was overthrown and the argument that there was no native title was defeated. This had implications for all Australians. And after 1992, it was not until, when was it, 2000, and when did um, Kevin do the apology? Jeffrey, do you remember? 2008. 2008. I thought the most powerful speech by PM was Paul, Ke- Paul Keating's uh, famous Redfern speech where he said, we, we did the, the killing, we did the rapes, we stole the land. You know what I mean? It was yes. a blunt and direct and honest truth-telling from yeah. the leader of the country. I mean, Very proud of him for that. And find that we find that when we go through our own history, Geoffrey, that we have some leaders who have been prepared to stand up and say, this is what we've done, this is where we've been, this is where we've come to and we're sorry we did it. What does that mean? Now and we're up to now having to discuss and wanting to discuss and needing to discuss the issue of a voice to parliament. We've gone backwards. <laughs> but, but, but we, we need, I mean, how can it be a question whether we acknowledge after 40, 60 years of saying, okay, we know that the land was occupied before? white British um, sailors found, if you like, Terra Australis. But why are we only just now, 220 years later, or 230 years later, actually? Almost 250, isn't it? 1770? Why are we now getting to the point of acknowledging the existence of people in a constitution? Even that in itself is important. And it is a disgrace. And compared to the other countries that are sort of embarrassed about their treatment of their native peoples, we should be absolutely humiliated. But it... I'm sorry, there just seem to be so many people who don't find that embarrassing and who don't find it disgraceful. No. And are arguing against having any kind of voice to punish... What's (laughs) wrong with having a voice, you know? There's so much right about it. Yeah. We keep on doing research on the mortality and morbidity of First Nations people and that's a lot of it is about the services we haven't provided yeah. or the structures that are not provided for First Nations people to get. So anyway, there is more to come There's after the news. There's more to come after the news. Yeah, hopefully you'll find it interesting. Um, yep. I, I certainly have learned a lot um, just thinking about this and seeing... I was actually hoping today's papers would have something um, more to go on. No, unfortunately, that was a waste of money, wasn't it? It was a waste of money. Anyway, we shall be back after the news. Indeed. Okay, uh, before uh, we go on to the next story, I thought I'd play um, a song. This is uh, not uh, an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander band, but it's a great song, and I think it still has relevance. It's Midnight Oil and uh, Beds Are Burning. Sad, boiling diesels, steam and forty-five. 
Oh, it's a great song. Absolutely. It's a really informative one and it's a, a morality tale, if you like. Certainly something we ought to have been considering all the way down the road. And they could rock and put on a performance could too. Could they ever? They were never boring. And listen, just before we go on, um, this show reports on uh, many stories that are relevant to illicit drug users and many of the articles featured are from other sources, including mainstream media. The contents of news from the drug war front broadcast slash podcast do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of karma and the connection. Karma does not condone nor condemn drug use and we do not promote illegal activity. However, we do recognise that drug use happens and will continue to happen regardless of laws and United Nations conventions. As such, karma focuses on harm reduction messages, drug treatment support services, advocacy and community development. We seek to reduce the harm associated with drug uh, use and its criminalisation through the provision of programs that foster community development and the delivery of person-centred holistic health care. Karma advocates for equity of health service delivery for all people, which I can only heartily agree. Okay, uh, look, I found this. This is not my stuff, but I found this on a uh, Facebook page called Corruption Watch. And it's basically saying that the... um, Liberal leadership tells us we should be proud of our history and we should be proud of what, um, of uh, which is worthy of praise and that there is a hell of a lot of our history of which we should not be proud and that hell of a lot we should continue to call out and condemn. Those societies which regard themselves as quite civilised have always had this presumptive sense of entitlement accentuated by preach superiority. In contrast, 
quote, native societies previously seen as savages were always looked down upon, belatedly acknowledged to be indigenous and no longer savage as a token atonement, continue to be looked down on in private and while begrudgingly recognised publicly. Therein lies the theory and practice of racism. You know how the saying uh, goes. Well, some of my best friends are, yeah. but, which is so true, Mary. Indeed. The Australian Indigenous people have been very, very patient in trying to make Australia, or white Australia, understand the unambiguous unfairness to which they've been subjected to since Invasion Day on 26th of January 1778. Many Australians, however, can't come to terms with the same, and every year continue to celebrate this day, either knowing and or not caring how hurtful it is to our Indigenous community who have and continue to suffer from the consequences of therefrom. Deaths in custody, apartheid, the stolen generation, systemic racism and racial profiling. Even now, there are some 22,000 First Nations children not living with their natural families who are, not, uh, who are deemed not worthy enough by the powers that be to be fit to care for their children. Those children are scattered in hotels, abusive households and uncaring guardians. It wasn't that long ago that apartheid was practised in remote locations. Back in the 60s, one brave First Nations activist sought to do something about the not-so-covert practice of apartheid in Outback Australia. This amazing activist gathered a group of black and white protesters, placed them in a bus and took the fight for equality to rural Australia. On the way, they got egged and ran by other vehicles, but they also managed to edge Australia closer to equality. As a young white Australian, I didn't know who Charlie Perkins was until I was 26. I don't know if this is typical of other young Aussies, but my guess, probably highly likely. Now, I guess why Charlie per Perkins is not as well known as civil rights activist Rosa Parks or celebrated Australian professor Ian Fraser. Here's what I've learned about Charlie and why I think everyone should know something about him. And it goes on to talk about his personal history, um, born to a white father and an Arente mother. Um, educated in Alice Springs, then Adelaide and Sydney, graduated from University of Sydney, becoming the first Aboriginal man in Australia to graduate from university. Think about that, Marion, 1966. It took a long time, didn't it? First time an Aboriginal yeah. man graduated. Graduated from university, yep. In the early 60s. That's so access, Geoffrey, that all down the line, or, yeah? Or, or whether... Access and, access and lack of entitlement, if you like, because people, I think First Nations people weren't brought up to expect... To be able to... That they would be able to get to university, let alone graduate from university. Education was a privileged position. Well, so, yeah. There are so many litanies of systemic um, robbery, you know, unpaid yep. wages. Yep. Um, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. You know, tra women trained to be um, housemaids. Yes, for white, white, um, white farmers, white, yeah, property owners. It were, and no pay provided or minimal pay provided was just this intergenerational trauma I was thinking about that while I was downstairs Jeffrey I think people of my ilk should know how much it impacts fa families down the track if something damaging is done to a um, a grandparent a great-grandparent or a family Historically, that often will be translated into uh, an an in what's it called um, 
an endemic, if you like, um, self-loathing that can be described as a discriminatory position, a self-stigmatisation, as we talk about with drug users. So intergenerational. So if your father or your grandfather or your grandmother is growing grows up in a violent situation with rape and uh, dismissal, if you like, as a as a human being, being uh, engendered into their spirit or pushed into them as this is what you aren't. You are not us. Yeah. We are not you. We deserve you. Don't. That can be translated down the line to and and it's so easy to understand if you take it in terms of what we have suffered as women too. Well, yeah, absolutely. That, how you become um, a strong woman as opposed to an aggressive one is as much a story of First Nations people as it is of women. Well, our First Nations have copped a lot as Indeed. far as I can see. And one of the things that has sort of come to my way of thinking and looking at this issue, the more I've learned about it, is that I'm actually surprised how um, generous our First Nations people have been in the light of these horrendous uh, treatment, crimes, murders, frontier wars, um, apartheid, uh, stolen children. You know, there's so many... Genocide. So many things, Marianne. Absolutely, that, that we have we have ignored, failed to acknowledge, and yes, there is such a huge extent of generosity and reaching out to say, "Come on, let's talk about it. Let's be part of this together." And that's what Reconciliation Week, I think, is about for me. It's about okay, please let's talk about it. I mean, I I want to say, please let's talk about it. It doesn't matter to me at First Nations. People put a please or a thank you in front of it. They have every right to say. They have every right. Just talk about it. Think about it sensibly. Don't be a dill. All this is asking for is something that the Liberal, previous Liberal government with uh, Malcolm Turnbull when he was um, Prime Minister. The one of them. Set off the consultation for the statement from the heart from uh, Uluru. Yep. And so for the current administration of that party to suddenly say, oh, we're against it because we don't have answers to all these questions. Well, the whole proposal was happening under their purview for years. They'd Ten pl- years, they pl- had them. Plenty of time to ask questions then. Absolutely. Six years since the statement from the heart came out, but ten years they were in government for. And I hope everyone has read the statement from the heart because it's an incredibly generous document. It's a very potent document too, Jeffrey. We read it out loud on the o- show on after it came out and it was a very emotional piece of work. It's also well grounded. The process of reconciliation and of implementing a voice through the statement from the heart uh, propositions has actually been worked out fairly thoroughly by the the people who worked on the statement from the heart. So it's something to be remembered by white Australians when they're talking about the voice. This process is not just a single thought from a single person. It is a 
soundly researched position that has been presented to government because it was requested. In all sorts of ways. And it's a very potent piece of work and it has a very practical application behind it. So that needs to be taken into consideration too. They've worked out how how they can be incorporated into constitutional and to um, operational, if you like, or the process of bringing the voice to parliament. So it's not that it is not well thought out. No. And just moving on to this guy's point that he made on Facebook, he then compares it to what happened in the United States. Now, I know the slaves that were brought over to the Ameri- to America currently it, count for 12, 12% of yep. the population. They're, what, two, two and a bit here. Um, so that does make a difference. But, you know, back in 61, the US civil rights freedom riders uh, rode buses and a challenge to racial seg- segregation. So um, you had white people joining African-Americans to actually try and change these things to actually uh, improve circumstances, and they targeted the blatant discrimination. Um, That did extend to parts of Australia, like um, he talks about an RSL club in Walgett at the time refused to let Aboriginal people enter, even those who served as ex-servicemen. So the activists took the bus to the protest uh, at Walgett Afterwards, an unidentified driver rammed the Freedom bus, forcing it off the road. Unfortunately for that driver, a cadet reporter had come along with the Freedom Riders and the incident made headlines right across the world. So it's not like Aboriginal people, First Nations people, haven't been trying to fight for some sort of... Rec- recognition. Recognition and, and inclusion, absolutely. And, and it's none of it's, to my way of looking, has is, is too um, outrageous or, you know, aggressive. It's, they're not saying we're going to get AK-47s and start shooting people or start a, an armed insurrection. No, but, I mean, you would think that possibly they could be forgiven <laughs> if they did <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because the the, uh, the violence that we've perpetrated onto First Nations people over the centuries has been monumental. So to be forgiven and yet still for First Nations people to be reaching out and say, let's reconcile our difference, let's have a truth-telling, let's have a treaty, let's have a discussion, but first let us be counted as people. Well, that's a good start. Yeah. And the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, let's not forget, was a huge part of trying to undo the damages of, of decades apartheid of apartheid. in South, America, South Africa, and absolutely. Desmond Tutu stressed the importance of that honest truth-telling. Yep. Both sides, you know, everybody. Like, not just making up stories to make you you look good. Um, That's the first part of actually um, solving or moving on from egregious harms is to to be Ensure that people have spoken their truth. Yeah, he goes on to say that the accompanying sense of disengagement and the associated costs have brought together Indigenous elders and leaders to address these problems. And from this, the Uluru Statement from the Heart arose, culminating in the voice. The whole idea of the voice is to give those people at the coalface a chance to be part of the solution, rather than always be regarded as part of the problem. This is the difference between, quote, civilised and, quote, native societies. Civil societies are hierarchical, command top-down, belligerent, whereas native societies were cooperative, ascribed to equality and sensitivity to the environment. And that's another issue where we've trashed their um, uh, sacred sites, their, um, you know... Demolishing that so in the northwest of uh, Western Australia, Geoffrey, the mine, where they acknowledged that there were important oh, yeah, yeah. sites there to be that should be retained and then suddenly... 
was it Beatinto? demolished them, despite the fact that two weeks before they'd acknowledged that they were there and that who knew how old they were, but they were decidedly thousands of years old. And stories of traditional owners and where they had been and where they had what they had owned and, and their activities and the time and they were on rock. But how and we managed to destroy the rock. <laughs> it's incredible. That's what we managed to trash or ignore or you know. Yeah. And, <laughs> It goes on to say, similarly, what our First Nations people want is to have a voice so that they can participate in solving the problems that beset them. These problems are many and varied, and all Australians should endeavour um, to support them. Uh, to support them, truth telling something many Australians, including our leaders, have had enormous problems with <laughs> yes. coming to terms with and acknowledging. Neither Howard nor Dutton could bring themselves to say sorry to the stolen generation, and both are opposed to the voice. Dutton is now on the record as saying that the voice will re-racialise Australia. Does he intend by prosecuting the no case against the voice to embolden even more Australians to express their biases and prejudices against our First Nations people? It's an interesting question. He just leaves that hanging. Well, that rhetoric is really important. I think it's useful because people in their brains are either saying no or yes now, having heard that, Geoffrey, when you present rhetoric or rhetoric uh, over the airwaves, people automatically answer it in their heads and it would be interesting to know what that answer was from our listeners. Did you automatically think no or did you automatically think yes? What was your first response to that statement? Yeah. Um, I think it's... uh, I was initially optimistic, actually, when it first was presented. I still am, Jeffrey, because uh, (laughs) over the last... The 10 years prior to the installation of the new government or the election of the new government, I was feeling very despondent. Um, With the election of the new government, I started to feel a bit more optimistic and really at the age of 70, not a time in your life to be cynical and pessimistic. It's really a time where you've got to hope that the world is going to continue despite climate change, despite endemic racism, despite... You know, wars and it's aggression a- between people. So I, I hope that at the age of seventy, if I die between now and and the referendum, say, I hope that people are thinking positively about the voice. Oh, so do I. If only to have the the construction of some kind of mechanism to talk directly. To First Nations people. Look, to actually join the civilised world, I think it is crucial that that referendum passes. But that's for white people to join the civilised world. I'm saying, no, it, we're saying, I think not. This yeah. Is, this is like last chance, as far as I'm All the previous chances have been um, ignored or rejected for spurious reasons, or and attempts have been made to do the same with the voice. The voice does nothing but say on issues of relevance to our well-being, our rights. Yep. We need to be able to make our our hopes and dreams known to Parliament. That make this. They're not. They're not funding anything. They're not deciding anything. It's not a third house of parliament. No. It's just we have a right to actually say something after 250 years. And be heard. And be heard. And be heard and acknowledged that we said something, yes? At at a federal level because we're not just talking about one part, one bubble of Australia. We're talking about 
what, a hundred Indigenous nations? Well, how many nations? Or over First 100, Nations people? Yeah, nations. At least a hundred Which nations. is another thing I didn't know until that, re- you know, fairly well, recently. Having watched uh, Nightburn on doing the weather in the morning, he often shows the, the map as drawn up by, by, the Aboriginal. by Indigenous yeah. um, populations, if you like. It is a whole different kettle of fish from the state. The, the eight states and territories that we uh, consider to be the way Australia is constructed. Yeah. So to accept that all First Nations people will agree with the voice added as it is presented. Oh, one is agrees about beyond, everything. We don't, yeah, on anything. We can't agree with our next door neighbours. So, of course, there's going to be a diversity of opinions. That only means that we should be discussing it more. It doesn't mean that it is that... Indigenous people all reject the idea. No. The closest comparison I have is um, I've travelled to New Zealand a couple of times and, um, of course, the Maori were the only Indigenous people who fought the British to a treaty, the Treaty of Waitangi, which yep. still is in legal effect, gives them right to all sorts of fisheries rights that's under the seabed. Which is interesting because they were actually South Sea Islanders, weren't they, that migrated to... New Zealand. Well, they they just happened to be there before they killed the the first white invaders that turned up. Who were what Scottish uh, Presbyterians? They, were, they weren't um, uh, prisoners. No, they weren't. No, we, it was not a yeah. But a lot of people don't realise the Maori um, had actually already um, fought the Moriori people um, off the islands of New Zealand and out to the the Mori. Mori, Moriori Islands. It's a, they've been moved off to yeah. another place. So the, I mean, the Maoris were very, very had a warlike part of their um, history. Absolutely, and were, the Haka is a really good example. Just watching it, you watching them, it's really quite intimidating. Yeah, it's very intimidating. Yeah. Um, but they didn't take it lying down from the British. Um, I don't think it's solved all their problems, but it's certainly given them recognition before the law. And well, and if you listen. To, to government and people in um, or journalists, they talk about Pakeha, which are white, yeah, people. white people. They talk about um, the inclusion of Maori people in decision making about themselves and also as part of the population of New Zealand. So it's an inclusion at two levels mm. of the Maori population uh, and the governing of New Zealand. And it's that's really important. And it's and not to say it solved all their problems. I don't no, know if you've ever seen the uh, No New one Zealand said film. that one thing could solve the problems. It just gives us them an acknowledgement, acknowledgement of place. Have you ever seen the film Once Were Warriors? Yes. Tamura Morrison. I mean, it's a very violent, very confronting, very visceral, um, truthful rendition of how the um, abuse of the cultural norms and the historical nature of being a warrior, men being a warrior class, yes, denuded of that aspect of their culture and replaced by alcohol drinking. I mean, there's some of the scenes in that. You can't help but watch that and, and really be, like, hit between the eyes. Um, Jeffrey, there's a just one thing about the... From Karma's perspective and the connections perspective, there's a, um, and we've sp- spoken about this from time to time, from the connection peer worker Monica, who has been, um, had been invited to present to the relations study seminar series that was December last year, 
Um, it was a UK government study on families and opioid use and how services can best best work with them. And this is really important because it's a program um, designed at Karma by Monica in consultation on how to work with people who had lost their children through um, community services input uh, and were separated from them for use of drugs or purported use of drugs and how they could work through the system. The Connections group was called the Jude Burns Women Group and it was a group for women with alcohol and other drugs and care and protection involvement. Um, and Monica is a first, as I said earlier, is a First Nations woman with a unique peer-based drug and alcohol service and the Jude Burns Women Support Group that she facilitates and designed for mothers with drug dependence and child protection in involvement. Um, and it's just something that I wanted to alert people to again and remind people that it has been promoted and it will be uh, conducted and it is in itself is an issue that needs to be looked at because while we are separating First Nations children from their parents, we are continuing the stolen generation. So we're talking about intergenerational trauma. Here's a great example of it. <laughs> Maintaining the stolen generations. There's a lot of similarities yes. in the way that that oppression. And, and for somebody to be presenting uh, a group that works to interfere in that process of removal of children from their parents is a really important group to be looked at and supported. Indeed. Uh, look, I found um, in my pathetic um, Aboriginal <laughs> music CD, for which I am deeply uh, apologetic and um, embarrassed, this is uh, Johnny Huckle. He's a Abor local Aboriginal performer. It's from the album Condo Dreaming, and the song is Uluru.
you know who I am You gave birth to my soul Please take me home To the place I know Uh, that was a beautiful song. That's mm. uh, Johnny Huckle, a local Aboriginal uh, performer from Condo Dreaming. And the track is uh, Uluru. And he's got a beautiful voice, hasn't he? That's, sure uh, has. Really That's a very... Glad we played this. I poured through the paper during that song <laughs> thinking there must be something about the, this whole issue in the major papers. And I did find something, Marion. I'll be surprised to hear. Nationals versus Dutton, exclusive by Lisa Byzantine. Federal a political reporter. Nationalist leader David Littleproud says he would not support opposition leader Peter Dutton's assertion that the voice will re-racialise Australia being included in the official voice referendum pamphlet, as he pledged the junior coalition partner would seek to ensure that the no case was put in a respectful tone. Well, that would be a nice idea, wouldn't it? But, but, but it's all OK. We can, we can treat you like dirt. Yep. We can ignore the generosity of and the years of work that have gone into it. And the reaching out, yep. And we just, just in a no. nice way... Say no. Say no. Not going to happen. It doesn't change a thing. Right. How could you re-racialise it and make it any worse? They didn't get the vote till 1967. If we're emerging from a culture of racism, which I hope we are, but I... I doubt it, only when it is brought out into the light or identified, called out as racism, um, do we acknowledge that racism still exists in our society. Um, 
But when we have a statement from the Leader of the Opposition that say we are re-racialising Australia, how can we? We haven't stopped being racist. We haven't, haven't cured it, if you like. How we can't? How There's can we no have people? To it. <laughs> yeah, it, it cannot be said to be re-racialised if you haven't stopped right, being racist. I mean, we've had black arm, uh, black armband view of history to wipe out any Aboriginal version of history. We've had the um, John Howard turning his back on <sighs> Aboriginal elders. We've had um, coalition people not walk across. Sydney Harbour Bridge in the Reconciliation March. March yep. I mean, there's, there's numerous other things that if you're a First Nations and person... And it seems petty at the time, Geoffrey, but it's actually quite indicative of a sense of we don't acknowledge you. And I'm, I'm sure the majority of people, white people, cannot feel like that, whether they vote Liberal, Labor or National. I'm sure they can't feel like that. But when one leader does it, it becomes a very momentous occasion. It becomes a real statement of intent to not recognise what they asked for. How many times have governments sent off committees to research an issue or to um, have a look at an issue and come back with an answer only to ignore the report when it's put in front of them? And how many times have we complained about that at this program about drug use, well, let alone about racism? It's starting to show me the connections that are far more um, than I ever would have thought, you know. For me, I've spent most of my adult life thinking my social justice issue is prohibition. Yep. It's caused the most harm, the most deaths, the most bloodborne viruses, Cut lives short. People, people in jail led to violence. It you know. hasn't been going for two hundred and fifty years. No. It's only been going for sixty or seventy years. No, no, that's a very good point. But it is, has nonetheless been a very deadly um, stance to have taken for any government, let alone an international organisation, to take the so-called war on drugs. But the racism has been so much more deadly so much more uh, damaging and so much more embarrassing well, for people I don't like understand. you and I. We, we sit there and say, how can you say that? It doesn't represent my perspective. However I vote, it doesn't represent my perspective. How can you say that? And have me feel proud to be white because I'm not. Yeah. When it comes to dealing with Indigenous issues, I don't feel proud about what leaders of parties are saying and presenting to our Indigenous hosts, if you like, because that's what they are. They're our hosts. We are in their country. We need to acknowledge that. And that there are a diversity of hosts. Yeah, I mean, they're not... Our Indigenous, the elders, the the current elders, the past elders, the emerging elders are not asking for 120 separate services to be provided. They are asking simply to be acknowledged as part of our population of a place that they inhabited for well, 50,000, yeah. 55,000, 57,000 years before we ever turned up. The yeah, longest-running continuing culture Absolutely. in human history. That's undeniable. And 
and how they maintain their country is just the lessons that look the Australian Army sent somebody a, a member of the forces up to the Northern Territory to consult with Indigenous populations how natural therapies that they used could be translated into therapeutic uh, remedies, if you like, medical remedies for people who look, who were in Australia, white mm. and black, how, but how Indigenous therapies or First Nations people could use their natural therapies. That were here. How, yeah, yeah. That were already here, so mm. we didn't have to rely on multinationals to provide medical... I mean, certainly they provide innovations, but the traditional healing that is available and has been available for thousands of years and is being translated verbally from one generation to the next. Um, the military have a copy of that. They have right. a copy of those therapies that they have not made public. And on so many other issues we haven't and even it's the bothered same, absolutely. to, to recognise. Or... Take the information, take the intelligence and keep it to ourselves. I mean, how do you survive 50-plus thousand years in as Without arid an environment like as Australia, mostly desert, yes. with very little water? That is a hell of an achievement. And I think there's plenty to be learned if you just open your eyes and your ears and say, hey, um, thank you very much for passing on that hard-won information. Absolutely. Um, and and have it, you know, having discovered it and retained it and then passing it on and, and then hanging on to it and personalising it and not making it public because who knows who's going to invi invade? Hang on a second. <laughs> who knows who's going to invade Australia? Well, you know, we already did that once. Yeah. Having an, an oblique connection to some of the recent protests by African-Americans over justice and police brutality, um, I mean, no justice, you know, no peace was basically the chant. And, um, you know, impunity for police to just blow people away. Absolutely, yes. Is, but, you know, here we have impunity for... I mean, look at the percentage of First Nations people who are incarcerated. Yes. Kids who are incarcerated. Yep. Um, spit hoods, um, all sorts of very nasty... Really, really gross, insulting methods of incarcerating and, and de dehumanising people who are in custody. Yeah. Disconnection from their way of dealing with wrongdoing. That's right. You know, which they have... And a, a set. They have an. In, most... They have a built-in method. They have. Sorry, a cultural, um, cultural, cultural. They're very actually a variety of ways that their culture deals with wrongdoing within their individual cultural settings, and we do not acknowledge that. And yet, I think it is absolutely essential that we do, and time that we took note of it. All right, I might try and play another song off the computer. This is uh, Archie Roach. Oh, that'd um, be good. I really want to hear that one. Yeah, it's one with Paul Kelly. I'm not sure. Can't, can't quite see the name. I haven't got my glasses on. Yeah. But uh, we'll, yeah. we'll give it a go. <laughs> Take that one. Um, it's on <laughs> disc number...
apologies for that. Uh, it's obviously not plain. <laughs> From the computer, that's right. There was a, a button you had to push, but yeah, we forget which button. Well, I did most of my training. Um, well, I did all my before training. The, in, before the, the new system. system yeah. So, yep. um, I might um, quickly insert this piece. It's a piece that we've been doing women's um, stories and the connection of women and drugs to, and the presentation of women who are drug users to society and how stigmatising that has been over the years. While Geoffrey is um, investigating <laughs> how to fight, put on another um, Indigenous presentation or even collaborating, if you like, ind Indigenous presentation of song, I'd really like to have a look at this story from Jessica Spratt called Owning My Pleasure. And the first heading is, I don't want a woman who takes drugs. Over the past 10 years of being a drug user, says Jessica, I have come to anticipate and expect this statement, either from a man I'm dating or from one who feels the need to tell me anyway. What's always interesting is that nine out of ten times the person who has said this is a drug user themselves, be it licit, illicit or a combination of the two. This therefore begs the question, why in 2022 are we still subject to this polarising view that what's okay for a man isn't okay for a woman? From a personal perspective, it could be in part due to the largely conservative Northern Irish society that she lives in. Uh, here, drugs are still very much a taboo subject, heavily criminalised and with very little understanding of the lived reality of drug use within wider society. This has been attributed to the legacy of the political conflict in the latter half of the 20th century known as the Troubles. The nature of the Civil War meant that the in integration of drugs into society was slower than our neighbours in the UK and Ireland. Initially, I felt that I should hide my drug use or at best downplay the role drugs play in my lifestyle. However, I found this almost impossible to achieve. I felt I was living a lie. This is because I understand and appreciate the potential for pleasure and enjoyment that drugs can reward me. The beauty of drugs is their ability to enhance, to enhance pleasure, connections, confidence. The ecstatic joy we feel when we combine them with music and dancing, the disinhibition during sex, the warmth and intimacy of new friendships. Of course, with all pleasures, there are risks, but the potential for sublime experiences almost always encourages us to navigate these risks responsibly, but with an anticipation of the freedom and the pleasure awaiting us. It is this acceptance that drugs play an integral part in my pleasure and leisure time that has motivated me to be open and honest about my drug use and to encourage other women to do the same. Throughout history, women have been prevented from pursuing pleasure. They've not had the opportunity to selfishly own their desires and feed their passions. Owning our drug use is a modern-day act of rebellion in recognising that we deserve enjoyment, pleasure, relaxation and escapism. I've been lucky enough to be able to pursue my interests academically, influenced by my weekends spent taking ecstasy and dancing the night away at raves. I investigated the re-emergence of the rave culture in Northern Ireland for my undergraduate research. Talking about this with friends and families, I realised that through academia and research, I could open the door for conversations on the pleasure and benefits of drug use. 
my master's focused on the presentation of recreational or non-problematic drug use in drug policies in the UK and Ireland. Spoiler, it's non-existent. That brings me to the current day, and I've just started my three-year journey as a PhD researcher investigating drug consumption amongst members of the LGBTQ plus communities in Northern Ireland. Already I have experienced stigmatisation as a woman in academia and drug research. Are you gay? What drugs do you take? Are you not worried about what people think? As a young woman who both uses and researches drugs, I've come to expect negativity and stigmatisation. But just because something is expected does not mean it's right. So the author of that, there's another no, paragraph. That's, that's the author really, of that um, is Jessica Spratt. Thanks, Mary. And that ties in really beautifully with the points we're trying to make. It, it, it's important, Jeffrey. I think, that, yeah. I think the First Nations issue and the women's issue are very similar in place. And I remember the very first time I saw an Indigenous woman on TV saying, First, I identify myself as a woman, then as a First Nations person, then as a drug user. Yep. And I thought all of those things were really potent for her to stand up and say. Yep. But they're very they're integral, I think, the issues, yeah? And well, the stigmatisation. Absolutely. Advance Australia Fair and Black. Don't let your troubles Don't let your troubles Don't let your troubles Eat up your day Pray Your blues away
Right, you're back with news from the drug war front, brought to you by Cam- uh, Karma, the Canberra Lines Farm Minimisation, and that was uh, local artist uh, Johnny, Huck- Johnny Huckle and Advance Australia, Fair and Black. If only we could actually put that into... Um, A bottle and sell it. Yeah. Jeffrey, people would buy it if they thought it was intoxicating. Yeah? Look, I, I just hope... Look, our regular listeners are probably thinking, oh, you know, that wasn't essentially about, you know, the drug war. Although I actually think... It is. I think the similarities are very strong. The more I've thought about our discussion and, um, you know, the fact that we've spent so long fighting prohibition and wondering why, with all the evidence we've got, well... Things have not changed. The parallels with, with First Nations people, they've been fighting for, what, 250 years? Yeah. And we've only been going for 60 years. How can we think that we are anything but juniors at this game, yeah? It, it's really appalling. And yet I think a lot of it still comes down to money, like you said, with Rio Tinto um, just yes. blowing up sacred sites because they saw the cash. That. Um, uranium mining, um, desecration of Kakadu. uh so it's horrendous desecration of the Amazon River, you know, desecration of sacred sites all around the world, well, it's let like alone in Australia. It? It's just of power. Yeah. It's about what you hear about. It's not about what happens. It's about what you, we are told about, and that's something for our listeners to think about. Investigate these issues. Have a look into them. In fact, just on that point, Maz, I'll leave um, listeners with, of course, the karma number 62533643 if you've got any questions. But also, if you um, have an email, it's info, I-N-F-O, at cahma.org.au. That's all lowercase, yeah. All lowercase. If you have any issues or you want to take issue with this, uh, both positive or negative. like sun lays me down with my mind she runs throughout the night no need to fight never a frown with golden brown every time just like the last on her ship tied to the mast two distant lands takes both my hands Never a frown with golden brown
temptress Through the ages she's heading west From far away, stays for a day 